This episode of Insights is brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca. Welcome to this edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I am Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Uh, David, we uh, we had a very interesting uh, conversation with uh, Dennis King, the Premier of Prince Edward Island. This is the first of our series of uh, podcasts with the current Premiers in Atlantic Canada. And I think it's appropriate that we lead off with PEI, don't you? We've, we've, uh, we've uh, actually focused a bit on PEI in our podcast as a bit of a model success in terms of their economic development over the last decade. They've led the region in economic growth uh, and population growth. They've led the region in population growth. Uh, we talked a, a little bit about their bioscience sector, which has been extremely successful. Uh, they're doing a lot of things right, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. So, of course, they've been uh, focused on population growth going back to 2010. Uh, you know, as the premier mentioned in our conversation, they've led the country or been among the leaders in the country for exports growth. So the, the PEI story has been, by and large, a very positive story. Now, immigrant retention has been a bit of a challenge. But as you'll hear in this conversation, uh, he did talk about how that approach has been recalibrated a bit, I think, in a, in a smart way. Uh, but I think the listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation. Uh, if you don't have a lot of exposure uh, to Premier uh, King, I think you'll find him very engaging and very uh, uh, optimistic and very um, just a really good sense of what he wants to do with the province. And I think it's a very enlightening conversation. One of the things that I, you know, I, I want to emphasize with our conversation with him, he, he is a nonpartisan politician. <laughs> it's a rare, rare uh, kind of uh, uh, event, isn't it? Uh, and in fact, I remember when he uh, when he first came in, uh, he made a big effort to reach out to the other parties and and to strike a collaborative mode, which continues to this day. Uh, it's very collaborative uh, in a world that has become highly, you know, partisan. And uh, it's part of his personality. He's very engaging, as you know self-effacing, humble, modest, uh, you know, he, he's a down-to-earth guy. You can understand why Islanders like him. He's very relatable, isn't he? He is. And one of the things that's frustrated me about politics in general has been that a lot of times politicians in opposition feel they have to oppose everything the government is doing, even if it's good. And then when they get into power, they have to literally repudiate everything done by the previous government. And I think he has definitely uh, actually praised the former premier uh, for things that he's done. Uh, and I think you're right, moving forward, I think he's been a very uh, open and, and, and limited partisan guy. I mean, politics is always, to some extent, partisan. But you have to understand there's good ideas on both sides or all sides of the aisle. And what you want to do is what's best for the province and not just oppose for the sake of opposition. So that you're right, that's a very um, refreshing uh, part of his approach to politics. We looked at all the major uh, economic sectors and, and PEI. Uh, we looked at the fishery. We looked at the agricultural sector, the tourism sector, which has been badly damaged. But, uh, you know, we got a good insight into each of those major players. And we also spent a little time talking about their highly successful bioscience sector. You know, there's a lot of uh, positive news, even despite the pandemic uh, and, uh, you know, I think we can look forward, don't you, to PEI continuing to be 
quite successful uh, looking ahead. He's made a major focus on clean technology, wants to create 2,000 jobs in the next decade, which would put it on par or very similar to the biosciences sector today. Uh, so that's a very exciting new initiative. It'll be interesting to follow that and see what they do really beyond the 50 million that they've announced, be it what they actually do to try and grow that sector. We talked about the inability to clone uh, Rory Francis, uh, the head of the biosciences <laughs> cluster. So it'll be it'll be exciting to watch that. But uh, I wouldn't bet against PEI these days. No, there's something special going on in PEI. And let's uh, let's listen to our conversation with Premier Dennis King. Welcome to our uh, podcast, Premier. Oh, glad to be here, uh, Don. David, I really appreciate the opportunity. We always like to start by finding out a little bit about the person. And I uh, wanted to, to ask you about your career uh, before entering politics. Can you give us a high level? I, like, I know you were in broadcasting at one time, <laughs> communications. Uh, you know, you've had an interesting background. Tell us about it. Yeah, I've had quite a, I've had quite a road to here. I, 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 you know, I'm a journalist by trade, and that's kind of where I... Uh, began my career. I, I started uh, at the Eastern Graphic in Montague in in the the fall of 1990, and and you know I, I consider that the greatest spot to start. You know, I was obviously in the last real wave of journalism before it began to be digitized. We laid out the paper manually. We 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 uh, we printed our own photos, and, and everything was a very much of a hands-on experience. And when you're a journalist in PEI, uh, you're kind of a Swiss Army knife. You don't just have one beat; you do a lot of things, and that's even further magnified in a in a in a weekly newspaper setting. So, you know, I'd be writing feature stories. I'd be writing sports stories. I'd be doing on the street questions and trying to get that one story that the other media would need to pick out uh, from a hard news perspective. So it was a great spot to start. And it actually brought me to government. I was covering government uh, in the legislature when, uh, you know, after Pat Binns had become a premier and uh, had an opportunity to sort of change to go, uh, we used to say, to the dark side, uh, you know, from media to uh, to communications and government. And I've really just sort of followed along that trajectory and uh, worked in the private sector. You know, I did the kind of the tour in PEI with, uh, with, with media, you know, private radio and other things. And uh, yeah, I really had a very interesting path uh, to here. And, uh, you know, I have to say it, it served me well in this job so far to have that uh, you know, I've worked in, in aquaculture, I've worked in seafood processing. So I, I you know, I've got a lot of uh, work with First Nations. So I have a lot of good life experience that I've been able to bring to this chair. Uh, can you tell us what led you uh, to enter politics initially? Yeah, I, I don't even, it's hard to really give a, a definitive answer on that. I mean, over my career, I think because I'm, you know, I, I'm, pretty easy to get to know and I'm outgoing and, and like to engage with people. So I think people over the years had asked me that and suggested that I would be in politics or would be good for politics. And, you know, I'd always kind of laugh and say, yeah, right. Well, you know, I thought you liked me kind of thing. <laughs> and and I worked enough with, uh, with former minister Mike Curry and former premier Bins. I, at least I had thought that, you know, I probably had seen enough of, of that side of politics that would sort of keep me out of it. But, uh, you know, I think it just as I as I got older and, and saw opportunity to, to, to make a little bit of a change and to, uh, you know, the, the window kind of opened in 2019. And I really had a hard, long chat with my, my wife and my friends and family to say, 
you know, if you ever really wanted to do this, the window doesn't open and it doesn't stay open for very long. And, and, and so I, I got tired of, I don't know if I ever said yes. I think I just stopped saying no and, and kind of ended up here. And, but I did say I wanted to do it a certain way. And I don't know if any, everyone and anyone who were supporting me at that time really thought I was as serious as I was with that. But, uh, you know, I, I've, I've wanted to bring something different to the fold. And I, I feel in the early stages we've been able to do that. And, and that's how I ended up here. And, uh, but I pinch myself every day sometimes and ask myself why most days. <laughs> uh, just as a, a, an aside, uh, uh, one of the things you have brought to politics is a more collaborative approach with opposition parties, and, and there's been a lot of, uh, I think there's been a lot of cooperation of the parties and PEI over, since uh, you came into the Premier's chair. Uh, and uh, so, you know, uh, it's a breath of fresh air, frankly, for a lot of us who have been following politics for most of their lives. So I want to congratulate you on that. And, and just also as an aside, uh, you your victory was a bit un, unexpected, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I think uh, you know when you run for politics, you can't wake up every day not thinking you're going to be successful. I mean, it, it's kind of a it's a silly business in that regard. Like even people who end up getting wiped off the map feel they're doing well and so i felt throughout you know your polling background you know what i felt throughout that uh the, the election of 2019 that uh, that islanders were changing the government and they were measuring uh, you know the, the the color or they were measuring you know what that change would be and i really thought that my uh, approach to collaboration and shaving off the edges of partisan politics was, uh, it wasn't just timely, but I think it was wanted by people. And, you know, I also probably had the benefit, as ironic as it sounds, of that 150 years of progressive conservative history here that probably made, you know, our party a little bit more of a safer landing party than some who were looking for change and were finding it in, for example, in the Green Party who made up the opposition. But I really felt uh, throughout and our internal polling had showed that we could win anywhere from 10 to 15 or 16 seats. Uh, and we ended up with 12 and we lost a couple just by, you know, narrow margin. So, uh, I, I, you know, I think the national media were sh more shocked than perhaps we were. We thought we were in the hunt, <laughs> but uh, you know, you never really know until they count all the ballots. Well, uh, I actually covered that election. I knew you were in the hunt for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was it was a really odd election because uh, uh, you know you had. You know Wade, who, who's a, who's a friend of mine, former premier. You know the, the previous premier McLaughlin, who is, you know, extremely talented and gifted and and so well educated and and really did so many good things here. But I think just got caught up in the he. It was his first term, but it was the third term for the sitting government. And and outside of Angus McLean and or sorry of of uh, of, uh, of Alex Campbell in in PEI, fourth terms are pretty elusive in PEI. So uh, you know. It was odd. Politics, of course, as you know, it's the only profession in the world where I would be chosen over Wade McLaughlin for just about anything. So uh, that's kind of the irony of uh, you know politics. To be honest, you're way too modest. <laughs>
Premier, you've been in power now for almost three years. You 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 took the helm in May of 2019. What have been the biggest challenge that you that you faced so far? Obviously, the pandemic must be on that list. But what have been the biggest challenges you faced so far? Yeah, you know, I think about this often, uh, David. I, you know, the first challenge was obviously the uh, you know the minority government for the first time, uh, really ever in PEI. I mean, it happened one other time, but it was very short lived. And so, going about building, uh, you know, a a minority government, people there, there's there was no playbook here. <laughs> uh, people didn't think it would last very long. So so that was a challenge. But, you know, I think it gave me the opportunity to really practice what I had been preaching during the election of, you know, of doing government a little bit differently and, and being less partisan and more collaborative. You know, but then we go into, you know, the, there were national rail blockades right on the heels of Hurricane Dorian, which was the biggest and most expensive, you know, incident that we'd had in PEI at that time, which was a really big, big thing, uh, you know, and then we get into, uh, you know, COVID. Uh, right before COVID, at the same time as Dorian, we had a, a very, very vicious malware attack, which really, really, you know, crippled services here in PEI and other jurisdictions had gone through that. Uh, and, you know, and then you throw a potato wart on top of uh, a almost two-year adventure with COVID. So I feel for the most part that you know, we, we've been in crisis management for, for a lot of our term. And, and uh, uh, you know, every premier, or every leader gets faced with crisis and challenge and, and things that they need to deal with. And we've just tried hard to meet that moment. Uh, it's made it hard to, uh, you know, do some of the things that we had hoped and do them as fast as we can or, or would have wanted to. But quite honestly, you know, I'm happy and impressed with what we've been able to implement in spite of all of that crisis. So it's, uh, and that's just not me the, from the, from, from my chair, but all Islanders have been living throughout that crisis as well. And, you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's been, uh, I guess, quite a journey <laughs> for all of us. So the uh, potato sector that you mentioned is probably more important to the Island economy than the auto manufacturing sector in Ontario. It's a, mm -hmm. worth about a billion dollars. If you look at the, the production of the potatoes, but also the value added and so on. Um, you produce, we estimate around 25% of all the potatoes produced in Canada. So I guess our question for you is, can you explain to the listeners the reasons for the ban on potatoes exports to the U.S. and what is being done to resolve this, this dispute? Yeah, well, of course, agriculture, as you said, Dave, is their biggest industry, uh, and 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 uh, you know, potatoes the biggest part of that. Uh, it's hard to fully explain and understand what the issue is. Uh, you know, uh, go back twenty years, uh, we had our, our find of potato wart in. Prince Edward Island, which is, you know, it, it's a, it, it's a soil-borne, uh, uh, you know, uh, infection that doesn't do anything other than disfigures the look of a potato and has the potential to limit yield. It doesn't do anything to help with the, or to harm the consumption of potatoes. It's more of a, of a nuisance pest that nobody really wants to have. Uh, and once you have it, you can't eradicate it. You have to find a way to live with it. So since the fine 20 years ago, we've been working with 
CFIA and, and, and with all of our worldwide partners to develop what we call a potato wart management plan, which allows us to live with, uh, you know, to live with uh, uh, potato wart here and to make sure we don't export it and we, we limit it, uh, limit its, its uh, exposure throughout the province. And we've been doing a really, really good job of that. In 20 years, we've never exported uh, potato wart and our wart management plan uh, is strong. Uh, it's validated by all of our partners and that's what made the decision uh, uh, this November so difficult for everybody here to understand is the, the United States determined that because we had two new fines in, in, in processing potato fields uh, uh, that I guess they determined that uh, there was a severe issue here that they didn't want in the U.S., uh, and they encouraged the Canadian government to close the border. Uh, it, so, you know, just for those who know, so the work management plan allows and actually provides for potatoes to be growing for processing uh which are French fries for for your for your you know viewers who wouldn't know what that means, but as long as they're uh, growing for processing in that uh, in your province, so all of the potatoes that were grown in that field were processed at Cavendish Farms in New Annan. Uh, so there was net; they were never to be exported. They would never be exported, and every potato that leaves PEI is washed uh, and and sprout nipped, what they call it, so that uh, the soil-borne nature of potato wort would be. Uh, would be negligible at best, if ever. And and the potatoes going to the United States are for our fresh potatoes that are to be consumed uh, by people in grocery stores and restaurants, for example. So we don't quite understand why uh, the measures that have been taken. Uh, we're, we're back into Puerto Rico now, which is you know, about 25 to 30% of the U.S. market share from PEI is in Puerto Rico. So that's a positive step. But we remain shut out of, uh, of the, the mainland uh, U.S., and that's had a significant impact on our economy. Any 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 timeline for getting that resolved? Any any sense of that? <clears throat> well, I mean, one of the dates that had been thrown thrown around by uh, Minister Bebo was uh, March tenth. I don't know if that was an arbitrary date or if that was a month after uh, the opening of Puerto Rico. But we have, as of the, the you know the moment of this podcast, uh, have not gotten any definitive data when that would open. The U.S. is going through, uh, I guess, their due diligence to determine what they need to see from us from a science perspective, and uh, uh, hopefully that can be resolved as quickly as possible because every day that goes by, there's millions of uh, pounds of potatoes that are being destroyed. These are good potatoes that should be eaten. And uh, uh, one farmer said to me, uh, you're, you know, the government support is great, but you're giving me, you're replacing loonies with dimes, and that's uh, hard to make a business uh, uh, doing that. At one time, uh, you were the executive uh, director of the Seafood Processors Association of PEI. The seafood industry is worth nearly a billion dollars as well to the island economy. Uh, what are the key opportunities for further growth of this industry, uh, in your opinion? Well, I mean, you speak to the, to the entire, uh, you know, seafood industry here in PEI. You have, uh, you know, lobsters for the last year. We had record landings and a record price. Never in history are those two things usually aligned. Usually if you have a record uh, catch, you have a smaller price or vice versa. Uh, so all of the factors and the trends in the lobster industry are, are, are around the world are really, really strong. Uh, the, the, the stock is strong and things look really, really strong there. Uh, you know, we've really 
really revolutionized our oyster business here as well. I mean, we've, uh, you know, oyster shipments are, are growing. Our product is in demand around the world. I think the opportunities going forward are really to continue to find uh, the value adds and to, to try to find those unique products or those unique opportunities that might be, uh, you know, unique to Prince Edward Island that we could, or to the region of Atlantic Canada to help with, with sales. Uh, but, you know, there seems to be an increasing demand uh, from a, from a protein basis around the world. People, our population is growing around the world. They need protein to eat. Uh, you know, uh, our, our seafood products are very, uh, you know, healthy and, and high in protein and in demand. And I think those things, uh, you know, are lining up really, really well uh, for the future. And of course, mussels here in PEI, you know, uh, world famous, uh, you know, PEI blue mussels, are, you know, and that uh, that continues to be a really strong market for us. But things are really, really strong in that regard. We've had our biggest year ever in terms of uh, economic impact from seafood and PEI. I had the pleasure of enjoying some of your oysters <laughs> last night, Premier. They were delicious, as always. <laughs> Obviously, the uh, tourism industry is also really important to the island's economy and has been uh, seriously damaged by the pandemic. Uh, what strategies are your government considering to help rebuild the tourism industry in Prince Edward Island? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about our economic uh, engines in PEI, it's, it's, it's agriculture, fisheries, and tourism, of course. Uh, and there's hard to point to an industry that has been impacted more uh, by COVID than, than tourism. And certain components of tourism, I mean, uh, you know, hotels and some of the hospitality aspects of that have really been uh, hit hard and, and maybe have changed forever. So we're trying to work very closely with our industry associations and all of the partners in tourism, uh, you know, to, to sort of determine not just the challenges of what we've been through, but what we can learn from that and how we can best position PEI as, uh, you know, we've set ourselves apart a little bit here in the region for sure, but certainly as a province of being a very safe destination, a place where people want to uh, get to. Uh, and throughout the biggest challenges of COVID, we've managed to keep our main uh, tourism providers and tourism anchors in place. Uh, you know, through sort of targeted programming and other things. And, and look, uh, you know, I, if you look at an example, the West Point Lighthouse in the western part of the province, prior to COVID, 75% of their business was international uh, tourists. Uh, that all disappeared, of course, during COVID. And now all of their business is almost, uh, you know, Eastern Canadian based. And they've had two really, you know, pretty strong years, all things considered. So the opportunity for them now is to go back, get a lot more of that market share that they had and to maintain the ones they have. And that's just a classic example of how the evolution in the industry is forcing everyone to, to sort of think a little bit more differently, to think a little bit more broadly. And, and I think our job as government is to try to, to fuel that, to assist uh, in any way that we can to, to help those people do the bad, you know, they're the ones who know this industry. Uh, government should be there with some of the tools, and that's what we're really trying to do. But I think we have a really, really good story to tell from tourism for Atlantic Canada, but also to build the population for those people who realize they can now work in Cape Breton or Eastern Prince Edward Island, for example, you can work in San Francisco or Toronto or Los Angeles or New York, and you could do it from here. And I think that's a that's a tremendous advantage 
that I think we needed we need to really try to uh, to leverage the best we can. I talked to Frank McKenna this summer about uh, that exactly. Is that you know throughout every crisis there's an opportunity here, and if we find that sweet spot of uh, you know of, of realizing that you can do all of those things here uh, around the world and you could do that from here so why wouldn't you want to be in, in, in Atlanta Canada yeah I just want to emphasize one point that you made because I believe it to be true I think that uh, the pandemics actually opened up more opportunities uh, within the region uh, for people who want to see the region um, I'm a good case in point. I, I, I was the PEI twice last summer premier. And it's a great place to be in the summer for sure. So it's wonderful. And uh, uh, I, I think that, that, that that's going to continue. I think people are, are have, this, have figured out that, you know, they need to spend more time uh, discovering our own region. So uh, add to that the international and national visitors. Mm. It should be actually better going, going ahead, I think. Yeah, I, I think too. I mean, we, you know, like, PEI would have a million five tourists in the run of a year. So all of us who have grown up here as locals, that's such been such a big part of our, you know, our, of our existence. And we always would joke as Islanders that we like to see the tourists come and we love to see them leave. So we don't always see ourselves as a tourist going to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. But I think we've all taken that opportunity, Don, to see parts of, uh, of, of this uh, region that uh, maybe we only read about or thought about. I mean, I, I spent some time last year in Bedeck for the first time in my life in, in Cape Breton and, and was just blown away by how amazing it was. And, 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 and I think you're right. I think there's also some disposable income that a lot of us have been, yeah. have been sitting on that we really want to get out and go somewhere. And last year, the only place we could really go was Atlantic Canada. And, and uh, so PEI benefited from that for sure. But, but, you know, so did, so did all of the other uh, regions as well. And I think, I don't, I don't see that disappearing quite honestly. No. I, I think that's only going to uh, expand. Yeah. So one of the other sectors that has been very successful uh, on the island has been the biosciences sector. The BioAlliance uh, has been an important catalyst for the growth of that sector. But it's I've done some work with, with Rory and the BioAlliance, and the growth has been fantastic. The recent announcement by BioVectra to establish a vaccine manufacturing facility on the island has provided increased national and international attention to the island. And in fact, when we had Rory on this podcast, uh, I was grumbling that uh, the federal government had invested in vaccine capacity across the country, except there was nothing in Atlantic Canada of any scale. And of course, uh, Rory told us to stay tuned. So he <laughs> must have known something was up. It was a few weeks later uh, when we had that BioVector announcement, which was really, really good for not only the island, but for the entire region. Hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what government is doing to ensure that sector is successful on the island and, and, and can continue to grow into the future? Yeah, I mean, that has been such a tremendous story for our province and, and for the region. Uh, when we did the announcement at BioVectra, I, I, you know, I, I thanked Rory and I referred to him as being, uh, you know, perfectly impatient. And, and that's what it takes sometimes is to have a driving force like that who can see beyond some of the corners a little further than, than others have. But, I mean, we have probably over 2,500 people working in that sector right now. Uh, that will continue to grow. Uh, you know, and, and you talk, David, about, 
you know, international and national exposure. But, you know, we've had 19 or 20 of the world's biggest bioscience companies that are connected to PEI or through their subsidiaries here uh, for a number of years. So I think those in the industry recognize the opportunities that are here. I, I think as a government, you, you try to build on the foundation and the planks that have been put in place. You know, a big component of the next steps, I'm sure Rory shared with you about the CASEL program and how that training is such important to the next step and that targeted training and how that's you know connected to the University of Moncton and and so many other you know we have a, we have a, a, a castle uh, uh, office being opened in British Columbia you know so so PEI is really a big part of, of, of the national and international bioscience world and I expect that will grow but we need to make sure that uh, uh, you know what these companies need it's, it's human resources and and to, to to keep and attract those human resources, it, it's about having access to, you know, quality housing and a quality healthcare system and childcare, and so many of those components are tied into the growth of a sector like that. And 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 it's bioscience will continue to grow, and 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 we're trying to capture that similar model when it comes to clean tech and clean technology, and the opportunities that are existing in the economy to green. Uh, you know, the greener world. And, and, and it's, it's sort of a similar model that we're hoping to, uh, uh, you know, to, to grow. But I mean, you, you can't have things like this without people like Rory Francis and so many others who are not just passionate about what they do. They're, they're so well-researched and, and so driven. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're in this situation now because of people like that. And uh, I, t I always joke, uh, quite honestly, if I had six or seven Rory Francis's here, uh, there's no telling what we could do. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about the, your clean tech strategy. I, I read in your state of the province address that you are looking to invest $50 million into that sector. And you would like to see 2,000 jobs created by 2030. Outside of cloning Rory Francis, uh, <laughs> what's, uh, what's your strategy to, to, to really see that sector take off? Yeah, I think that, I mean, quite honestly, I mean, this is one of these where I think you have to set some ambitious goals, uh, even if you don't quite know where you're going yet. I mean, when, when you go back to, you know, you know, Kennedy decided to put a man on the moon, nobody knew how they were going to do it, but they set a goal and they worked toward it. So th this is sort of uh, like that in a way that we all know we have to find new technologies and opportunities uh, to, to, to green our planet. Uh, and, and rather than just saying we need to stop doing this or change our habits for that, we actually have to invest in, in these technologies and invest in the people who can help us get to where we need to go. So, um, you know, the $50 million is, is just very much a seed investment. Uh, we just made an announcement last week where we, we have a, what we're calling a Clean Tech Academy in partnership with UPEI and Holland College, you know, to bring some R&D and, and some component around that, uh, you know, so but there will be a, uh, uh, you know, a lab where people can come in with ideas and we will invest in that and and that's very much what we're what we're thinking but you know the model with bioscience was very similar to that 15 years ago or, or so uh and i just think it, 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 this is an investment in you know the intellectual innovation it, it's this invention uh, you know uh, uh, investment in ideas and and concepts and then you know once we work on the concepts and ideas how you monetize that and how you commercialize that uh, you know that's another component of this as well but i really do think that uh, you know as we 
end our reliance on fossil fuels. There's technologies we'll be using in 10 or 15 years or maybe sooner that we don't even know what they are yet. And it's my great hope that some of those can be conceived and developed and implemented here uh, in PEI and and, and in the region. One of the uh, important trends in, in, in the province, but also across Atlantic Canada in recent years, has been these uh, the focus on startup companies. So these are technology based companies or, or other companies that have great growth potential. We've seen a number in all four provinces emerge. One of the things these companies need is access to capital. Mm-hmm. So a number of business leaders have got together and put together a concept they call the Atlantic investment bubble. And basically that would be all four provinces have investor tax credit programs. The goal here, the idea is that these investor tax credit programs would somehow be applicable in all four regions. In Mm -hmm. other words, for the purposes of the listeners, you know, if I was an investor in New Brunswick, I could invest in a PEI company and get the tax break. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, it's targeted to specific sectors, so it's not willy nilly. But I guess the question for you is, have you seen this Atlantic investment bubble idea and what's your position on the concept of a regional uh, uh, equity tax uh, credit program? Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the last two or three Council of Atlantic Premiers meetings that we've had, we, we've talked about this. And and what I like about it is that it, it this is it's industry led, which I think is important, but it also it's allowing us as a region to use our collective strength. Uh, as opposed to just trying to be, you know, individual. So we have, you know, Island Capital Partnership. We, we have some programs here where we do a bit of a variation of that here, and I'm sure other regions do as well. And what I really like about this, it, 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 it's a collective view at, at a strong future for, for the region. And I think, you know, maybe 20 years ago, these types of concepts were weren't quite as broadly talked about because we were, and by nature, we're very protectionist of our jurisdictions, and nobody has ever wanted to talk about, you know, regional cooperation, you know, beyond the, you know, a line in a press release, so to speak. But I think a lot has changed. COVID has changed a lot of that as well, and I think we need to position our region uh, to 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 tap into that collective strength. We're talking about it from a healthcare perspective as well. So th- there's more opportunities for regional cooperation than we think. Uh, you know, uh, where we're trying to crack that other nut of uh, you know, the the College of Physicians. Every province has one of these that approves. Uh, you know uh, the, uh, the 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 credentials of one person, and uh, you know, to me, if you can practice in New Brunswick, you should be able to practice in Prince Edward Island without too much uh, red tape. Or if you can practice in Saskatchewan, for that matter, uh, I don't think it should be vastly different for here. So some of those issues, I think, we're talking about more in earnest now from a regional perspective than we ever have. But you know, there is some collective wealth here in 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 the region, and I. I think most people, uh, you know, who want to invest this money, uh, you know, if they could make a reasonable rate of return and have an impact in their region, that's where they would want to do it. And I think governments should try to be as accommodating as possible to do that. You know, when I worked for former Premier Bins, uh, when we built one of the wind farms here, we offered a, a kind of a tax credit through investment through RRSP uh, that nobody really knew what would become of that. And it was, you know, it was oversubscribed within 30 days. So Islanders really wanted to get behind an investment like that and to see the money that they're investing 
you know, here more people are talking about ethical investment and all of these other aspects around the world. And I think governments, you know, from a regional perspective, I think we'll, we'll, we will get there in some way, shape or form without uh, uh, too much more time, uh, you know, on something like that. And I look, it's exciting uh, to talk about those opportunities. And uh, I mean, if we have money that's here and we can generate uh, opportunity from that money and keep money flowing here, that's, uh, you know, that's an economic tool we should be looking at for sure. Uh, Premier, uh, to the surprise of many, I think, uh, the island led the country in population growth in the last census. I, you know, this I've been following the story for more than a decade, so it's not a surprise to me. But you have given credit to previous governments for policies that have led to population growth. I think that's one of the refreshing things about you, that you're not afraid to credit uh, other governments, including governments that are from other parties. So, you know, that's great to mm. see. Much of the population growth uh, has uh, occurred in the greater uh, Charlottetown area, obviously, and, uh, and a lot of it is a result of immigration. Uh, what strategies are your government focused on to continue to grow the population, especially in other parts of the province? Hmm. You know, I, no, I, I really appreciate that question, Don, because I, I do think that, uh, you know, uh, in particular, Wade McLaughlin put a tremendous amount of focus on this, and I think that he kind of made sexy what isn't quite easy for people to understand. And that is that, you know, our future growth and the opportunities for growth are going to, you know, be built around the fact we need more people here. And one of the ways to do that is through immigration. And immigration really started in earnest here, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s through the provincial nominee program uh, and, and other programs such as that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've seen tremendous growth, as you say, in, the, in this province, and, and that continues. So that tells me people want to be here. That's a good thing. Uh, but there's also uh, the, the challenges we have to provide for people, uh, you know, that we struggle with housing. Uh, you know, in the region, simply because I don't think we've made the investments along the way to keep up to the growth in population. And so that needs to change uh, for sure. But I also think that, you know, and Wade helped steer this in, in that we've changed how we look for immigra immigration. Like we, we, we've changed how we do it. And it used to be we talked about we need skilled workers, we need seafood workers. Uh, and I think we've really seen a fundamental change in the last five or six years that we're actually recruiting immigrants. We're recruiting the person, the family. And all of those individuals and families, of course, are can help in different uh, aspects of our economy and our society. Uh, they can be, they can work at BioVector, they can work in bioscience, uh, they can do all of those things that we need as a society to have our economy grow and thrive. But I think we've had a change in focus to to really personalizing the immigration system. And I, I give Wade a lot of credit for that. I think I think he'll be remembered fondly for things like that. And, and some of those things, as I say, they aren't sexy to talk about, they're not easy to spin into a 30-second soundbite, but fundamentally, They've, they've got us on the path, uh, and I'm trying to help build upon that as well. I'm trying to keep that focus, uh, and, and I'm also trying to make sure government programs are invested 
in, in the proper way to make sure we meet the needs that, you know, anybody who moves here, whether you're a refugee or whether you're an immigrant or, or whether you're re relocating back from Calgary after having lived there for 20 years, what you want is you want a, you want a place to live, a place to thrive, a place for your family to be safe. Uh, and, 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 you know, you want, you want those uh, uh, comforts of home. You need good high-speed uh, internet is now it's it's not a wish it's a need it's like electricity and asphalt were in previous times so those things we need to continue to invest in and to be on the cutting edge of and if we can do that in atlanta canada i really think it will position us very very well uh, for growth uh, in recent years the population has grown at a fairly high rate of two percent per year that's twice the rate for the country as a whole there is growing concern that this rate of growth may be too high and putting undue pressure on the affordability and availability of housing. You're starting to get some pushback, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in, in high growth areas like Halifax, for instance, and Moncton and uh, in, in, in the Charlottetown area, for sure. Uh, are you concerned about the high rate of population growth? And what is your government doing uh, to deal with the pressures uh, on the housing market? Well, I'm very concerned about the the potential impacts as we grow. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm 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 afraid or worried about uh, population growth. How we adjust to it and adapt to it, I think, is what you try to spend your time uh, uh, worrying about and planning for. I I do think that you know part of your last question, which probably I didn't answer, was that you know we do have opportunities for people to live in other parts of this province, not just Charlottetown or Summerside or major centers. I mean, Cornwall is now the fastest growing uh, community and one of the fastest growing communities in, in the country, Stratford before that. Uh, and for those who aren't familiar with PEI, they're kind of suburbs of Charlottetown. Uh, and uh, But now, what, I grew up in Georgetown. When I was coming to Charlottetown the five times in the first 10 years of my life, it was mm -hmm. took an hour to get to Charlottetown. Uh, you know, whether that was the car or whether that was just the reality. Now, if you live in Georgetown, you're 25 minutes from Stratford, which is essentially Charlottetown. So it's not out of the realm of possibility now with technology and transportation and other things for you to live and, and, and work in Cornwall, for example. So the opportunities for growth are, are you know, across the board. Uh, housing is a big, big issue for sure. And I think there are many aspects of the housing uh, situation that we do really well. And there's other things that we need need to obviously to do better at but you know affordability don is one of the things i worry about for sure especially with the inflation and the cost of living increases we've seen uh but you know, it's also frustrating a little bit because we've never built more uh, housing and apartments and complexes than we have in the last five years, uh, and it's uh, but it hasn't been able to match the growth. And, and uh, we also have issues in the construction industry. We're probably at capacity of what we can build. Uh, so it's you know we have to look at all aspects. Uh, you know, are there houses in in rural PEI that aren't utilized that we could utilize? Like I think it, it's a very comprehensive discussion that that is required. And if it was as simple as money, uh, you know, money we can figure out. Uh, but this isn't just about money and investment. This is about, you know, so many other aspects. But I, I want to see our province grow. 
uh, and as you grow, uh, part of the you know the growing pains as you grow are challenges like uh, that we're dealing with. But I, I to me, uh, they're good challenges as opposed to wishing people would come here and and, and not seeing them come here. Uh, but it's also a tremendous responsibility for government and others to to try to address. Yeah, Don and I have talked about for a long time, it's better to be managing the challenges of growth than the challenges of decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly better. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about the pandemic. PI has managed it extremely well, uh, very low hospitalization and very, very few deaths relative to the national average. Of course, you do have the advantage of being able to, as an island, uh, uh, to be- better control that who comes in, who gets out. What have your most important learnings been from that pandemic? And second question, when do you anticipate that PEI will be able to move fully to an endemic stage for this virus? Overall, I'm very pleased with how we've handled this most difficult situation. It's been a tremendous advantage as an island province because right up until Omicron, the effort of most jurisdictions was to try to do everything you can to keep the virus out. And because we were an island province, we were able to do that probably at a rate, uh, maybe only Newfoundland, uh, you know, or, or the territories had, had, a, had a similar opportunity to keep it out to the extent that we did. Uh, Omicron kind of changed that. And, and, and most of the cases that we've had in our province and all of the deaths now 16 uh, are since Omicron uh, got to PEI. And with the way that is spread, Keeping it out is no longer the challenge. It's now tried to, to manage it, and that's been an adjustment for us. And I, I've heard different people on premiers' calls say like only 15 or 16 deaths, but in a small place like PEI, 16 is a lot. And that's you know we know those people and the families probably more so than they do anywhere else. So so they are they they do hurt you know and 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 they do uh, uh, sting maybe more so than than some of the numbers in. Larger jurisdictions, but I'm very pleased with how Islanders, for the most part, have responded. We do have probably the highest level of, of vaccination rates. Us in Newfoundland and Labrador have been neck and neck on that, and 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 so I'm I'm proud of that. It hasn't been without its challenges. It's obviously, you know, I worry about the mental health impacts of, of this on everybody. A, a, a little story here, I, as a former storyteller, but. We were making some changes to senior management here in the last uh, few weeks, and I had asked a very talented person who I thought would be a tremendous asset to our deputy minister team, uh, and they just totally broke down from two years on COVID and mentally just not able to take on a challenge such as that. And that really, uh, you know, really hit home for me uh, that the, the the bruises and scars of this, even if they, we can't see them, uh, they aren't going to disappear on April 1st. And, and so I, I worry very, very much about that. And I worry about the, the lasting impacts. You know, we've conditioned everybody for two years to look at COVID case numbers. And now that COVID case numbers are high, uh, we kind of forget about the high vaccination rates and the therapeutics and everything else that we have. And that still startles people when they see 400 cases, for example, or something like that. So I'm really, really worried about the impacts of, you know, of of two years of this. Uh, I think we're trending right now. uh, April 7th or April 1st would probably be the end of our uh, state of public health emergency, and therefore that would 
the you know the the testing that we still do with the bridge would disappear, uh, those types of things. And that's maybe a week or two slower than some of my other jurisdictions. But um, this has never been a race f for us. Um, and uh, you know, I'll take the advice from Dr. Morrison and her staff if we could go a little sooner on that. But um, you know, overall, you know that that has served us well that approach. And uh, it's been, uh, but it's not been without its challenges. And I don't think those challenges disappear when the mandates are lifted. So one of the challenges of growth and exacerbated by the pandemic is access to health care. We do know that there have been a number of surgeries postponed and wait lists have, have lengthened. Uh, it looks like there's 20,000 plus Islanders on a patient registry looking for a doctor. Um, what plans do you have to address these health care challenges? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously one of the biggest issues we all face. I mean, and, and you know, as a, as a country and as a region, the, you know, health human resources is a big, big issue uh, for all of us. Uh, and it's really forcing us to try to do more with less or to try to change how we do things. You know, there was a time in PEI when everybody strove to have, to make sure everybody has access to a family doctor. And the way family medicine practice has changed over the years, um, you know, new doctors coming in have a thousand patients as opposed to Dr. Ellis from uh, the Hunter River area where I represent, he probably had 10,000 uh, when he was practicing in, in, the, in the 80s and into the 90s. So I think it's no longer, if it ever has been, achievable for everyone to have, quote unquote, a family doctor. So what we're trying to do is 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 to change and, and develop a more collaborative system where, uh, you know, we would have people tied to uh, what we would call neighborhoods or homes. So uh, that neighborhood or home would have a number of family doctors attached to it, but also nurse practitioners, you know, RNs, LPNs, and social workers and other, you know, so it'd be like almost like a, a bevy of services of healthcare uh, for, for those individuals. So uh, that's what we're transitioning to. And that's not something that Dennis King just thought of. This is something that all regions are moving toward in some way, shape or form that this collaborative model of, of delivery and to try to give people uh, service as close to home as possible. And, and, you know, by doing that, you know, we certainly feel and the numbers suggest that that also takes pressure then off the emergency room, for example. Like when people go to emergency services, what we're finding is, you know, two and three and ten or sometimes less are actually what you might deem as a medical emergency. Uh, but because people can't get access to services, they do know that if you go to the emergency room, they're obligated to see you even if you have to wait eight or ten hours. So uh, that's, I think, is a very inefficient use of everybody's time, including the people who are waiting for it. So the trying to give people access to that service uh, you know, and, and a broader level of service is something that we're really, really working toward. Uh, we have one of those uh, homes set up already in, in Kinlock, uh, outside of Charlottetown, and and that's where we're going with this. And it's 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 what you know, doctors. It's helping us recruit doctors and healthcare professionals to the province. They want to work in in a in a model of delivery such as that. Uh, and it's it's really looking at the the realities of today and the challenges of tomorrow and how do you deliver uh, a quality system, uh, you know, realizing that, that this is the, re, you know, that this is the situation we find ourselves in. So, it, 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 but it's not without, 
Don, I mean, you've been following behavior your whole career. These behaviors long, uh, you know, bred into us don't just change overnight. And there are people who call my office every day saying I need a family doctor. And I understand that. Uh, but I'm also trying to be honest and open with the population to say, I'm not going to be another politician who promises to do something for you that I know I can't deliver on. Well, Premier, just let me say that I think you're 100% uh, correct in your direction. I, I've been advocating exactly what you've been talking about in terms of collaborative healthcare practice. You know, it's about access to primary care. It's not. It's no longer about access to a single family doctor. That's not the way family docs work anymore. And you know, we have to educate people to a new model of access to primary care. And there, you know, there's a big communication education component of this, obviously. And and by the way. You know, it's it's a problem that every province in Canada has. Even Alberta, the richest province, the last time I looked at the numbers, proportionately, they had more people waiting for a doctor than PEI did. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, pr proportionately, so we have to we have to change the mentality uh, of thinking about uh, how we uh, get access to primary care. It's going to be it's going to take a while. You know, you know, you know. I think younger people will be more accepting of this. By the way. Than older people, obviously, because well, it's funny because I, I I agree, and I think COVID has shown us a little bit of the roadmap on this. So, I mean, uh, if you up in the western part of the province, uh, we employed a very significant telehealth uh, program uh, mm. in in the last eighteen months. And if you would have told me when I went to work for Pat Bins in nineteen ninety six that uh, the people up west would have uh, supported. Uh, seeing a doctor on a computer, I, I would have thought you were you were losing your mind. But I mean, people really adjusted to that quickly, and and they adapted, you know, to it, and they come to rely on it. And and these are types of innovations, particularly if we're trying to keep rural PEI and rural Atlantic Canada strong. Uh, you know, we're not going to be able to offer services uh, in those regions that we what we had the luxury of doing thirty and forty years ago. But we can offer a level of service uh, that has quality to it that is you know, intertwined with our referral hospitals and, and our greater system, uh, which will allow people to have a comfort level to, to remain and to move into those regions of the province. And it's just about trying to utilize the strengths of your system across the board to serve a broad number of people. And, and I know that's, uh, it's tough for people to, to, for some people to get their head around it, but I'm also surprised pleasantly that uh, many people are ready for this and are expecting this and, and, uh, and are supportive of government trying to find a way through this. But I mean, there, that's not to say it won't be without its headaches. <laughs> we, we have just a couple uh, more questions, Premier. Um, one is related to the recent announcement by the University of Prince Edward Island to create a new uh, faculty of medicine in partnership with Memorial University. Uh, currently, the um, the island relies on designated positions for training doctors at Dalhousie's Faculty of Medicine. What led to this decision and how will it increase the number of doctors on the island? Well, I mean, it is a very unique proposal that was brought to, to my attention, you know, 18 months ago or so. Uh, and, and sort of what the model is, it's very unique. It, it's, it's a co-degree between Memorial University and the University of PEI. Uh, and it's, once again, it's utilizing the strengths in our region to try to capitalize on, on uh, uh, to, to address a challenge. We have... Um, uh, you know, we'll continue to make the investments in the seats at Memorial and Dalhousie, but uh, I guess it's it's hard for me and hard for some people to sit here and think, 
uh, every year we hear we need more doctors, we need this, we need that. Uh, and, I, you know, if we have the opportunity to train them, uh, the hardest part uh, in recruitment of health professionals for a place like PEI uh, is, is getting them here. And once we get them here, we can roll out the red carpet and show them what life is like here. Uh, so I really think the opportunity to have them train in PEI will be a great advantage for us. And if we can build that collaborative type system uh, that, we're, that we're trying to build, and I'm confident that we can get to, that uh, more and more doctors will find themselves wanting to be here and to participate in that. And anytime you can make an investment around this, you know, the, the research opportunities and the attraction of, uh, uh, of people to a university who, who they can teach and they can practice, I think is, is a really good investment in the future. And I, I just think it's, it's an opportunity and attempt to try to take control of our own destiny a little bit here uh, and to try to answer some of these questions. Look, I'll probably be long gone out of this office before we start to graduate some of those uh, doctors. But part of the job is to, uh, um, you know, to build something a little bit better for the future. And, and uh, you know, if I can help the future generation by uh, training more and more doctors here and, and, and keeping them here, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a noble effort and something that I'll be proud of. Another challenge, obviously, that has uh, got a little bit more scrutiny during the pandemic is long-term care. Um, obviously, one of the biggest challenges to long-term care is staffing and, and pay. The demand for staffing is everywhere in Canada. How how is your government addressing this staff staffing shortage on the island? Uh, you know, I think I, I think this is one of these uh, many areas of our society where uh, COVID has opened the door to you know expose lots of weaknesses and, and, and potential strengths. But uh, like every other jurisdiction. A PEI is, you know, we have kind of a hybrid model. We have a private and a public delivery model. And I think, you know, we're probably need to have a very grown up conversation uh, with, with all of us, uh, knowing we have an aging demographic and the need is going to grow in that area well into the future. But I mean, wh where does government need to be in this and where should government be focused on its resources? Uh, and, you know, and that's not to say I don't think there's opportunity for private care, uh, but I think as long as there's a discrepancy in the wages between private and public, that this will continue to be an issue and will make it difficult or more complicated to attract new people to, to the industry. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to embark on a pretty comprehensive review of long-term care delivery services in Prince Edward Island in, you know, in the weeks ahead. Uh, and I think, you know, a part of that review, I think, has to be to ask some of these very, very difficult questions of of what role that the private sector can play, what greater role does government need to play, is this something that, you know, for-profit business, is this a, an area that for-profit business should be into to the extent that it is, uh, you know, and, and these are, aren't easy questions, they're uncomfortable questions, and, and, and we don't have answers to many of them, but I think we have to ask them, and we have to plan, knowing the demographics uh, that, that you've talked about many, many, for many years, Don, is that, you know, I think, how do we deal with this? People are living longer, 
Uh, that's, that's great. People are healthier and they're living longer. Those are great stories. But as you age and you develop more and more chronic illness, uh, there's a greater responsibility and need that you have for healthcare services. And, and, uh, and, and uh, that's not going to change. It's only going to grow. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think we're at a crossroads there, to be honest. I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that, but I think everyone knows we need to do better. And part of doing better is helping to recruit people into the field. And part of recruiting people into the field is knowing that it's a good job and it pays well and there's opportunity for growth and advancement. And, and a lot of those things, I think, are complicated in that field right now. Premier, time flies. In the, in the fairly near future, you're going to have to go back out to the voters. <laughs> well, I don't have uh, to. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, but I don't have to. We hope you do. Let's say, let's say um, so what are, your, what are your top priorities over the next 12 months or so as you, uh, as you look to that? My, my priority would be to obviously uh, to, to move past COVID uh, to find a way to get our potatoes flowing again and get some long-term stability in that area. And then, then to have some time to focus on some of these really, really difficult societal issues that we haven't been able to focus on to the full extent that the, you know our province needs us to. So I would like to, the, the, the getting back to normal for me would be, uh, you know, the questions in the legislature be around, uh, you know, why aren't we going fast? enough on this or that, you know, and that type of thing. Uh, but I really do think, you know, uh, we're, we're, at a, we're at a crossroads. We have an opportunity to really uh, move forward and, and grow as a, as a province and a region. Uh, I, and I don't want to lose, if, if momentum's the right word, I, I don't know, but there's a certain momentum and, and opportunity we have for some transformation from COVID that I'd like to try to capitalize on and, and build upon. And, and that would be my, my main focus. Of, of, but, you know, we all of the burning issues we had and we continue to have through COVID are here. Uh, and we've tried our best to address as many of them as we can uh, while being distracted by pandemics and other things. But, uh, you know, I, I think we have a good story to tell. We have, a, we have an opportunity to grow and, and, and continue to prosper. And, and I look forward to that over the next year. And I really, the election is scheduled for, I think, fall of 2023. And that's, that's fine. We don't need to rush that. We, I don't think people... I think people are sick of politicians. They've seen enough of us for a while. Uh, and the last thing we should be doing is, is inflicting another election on them at a time when, uh, you know, they just got to probably like us to disappear for a while. And uh, I, I'd be happy to disappear for a couple of weeks, I can be honest. So we always ask our, our guests whether they're optimistic or pessimistic about the future. I think we have to say, based on our conversation today, that you're very optimistic about the future of the island. Uh, but do you think, do you think the, the foundation is in place to continue uh, over the next decade to see the growth, the amazing growth that you've seen over the past 10? Well, I, I think I'm optimistic by nature. And so, but, but, I, but I do think that, you know, a lot of the factors are working in our favor, um, you know, but, but, but there, there are challenges that, you know, we can't ignore. I mean, we've tried to take on a lot of these things. We had a 30-year fight in PEI over, you know, irrigation and, and uh, for agriculture. And, you know, we, we, we've taken issues like that head on and, and, and found a way to work 
you know, uh, to find a reasonable way forward. And, and I hope that that approach will be useful as we tackle some of these issues, long-term care and housing and health care. And, and uh, you know, it won't be my style to come up here and say, this is how we're doing things. But I think I can, you know, facilitate good conversations and take good ideas and get them implemented. So that makes me optimistic. Uh, but you know, I'm a, I'm a politician. I, I worry. I'm, I'm a father. Uh, you know, I have uh, you know a 17 year old and a 14 year old, and I, you know, wonder what the next five years uh, for, the, for, for 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 them, and what their opportunities are, and how they see the world. And and uh, so, you know, I think a healthy dose of optimism, but also some realism. Uh, dialed in there. And if we want this growth to continue, uh, we have to keep creating a place where people want to be. And uh, so far, uh, we've done that. And I hope we can continue. Premier, thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. And we wish you uh, continued success. Really appreciate it, David. Don, thank you very much. Great honor to be with you and uh, keep up the good work. I just want to add one thing, uh, you know, uh, we've been concentrating a lot on the economic role uh, model that uh, PEI has become, but you yourself, Premier, are a role model for other uh, politicians, in my opinion. So congratulations on your well, uh Thank you. That's very kind. I, I appreciate that. And it's uh, nice to hear that coming from someone who's watched so many as you have. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week. This episode of Insights was brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca.